You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? There was no shortage of men and women in the early days of the Republic who harbored courage and virtue beyond the average person. As 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, they risked their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor in defense of liberty. Although many of them never had to face the consequences of that risk, some indeed did. To put your life, your reputation, or your career on the line in defense of something Above yourself is a virtue that few then possessed, and even fewer possess today. Yet, as remarkable as their courage was, even this pales in comparison to the bravery and leadership of one woman who constantly put herself in real and present danger because of her belief that none of her brothers and sisters should live in bondage. Throughout this show, we have highlighted several men who, in one way or another, advanced liberal democracy and Republican government for themselves and their posterity. Yet while those men built a freer world around them, this woman lived a free life unashamedly and without permission from anyone. Some people dedicated their lives to building the foundation of a free society in the United States. Others devoted their time to cultivating a culture that prioritizes freedom above all else. Others still acted as patrons, devoting their resources to a freer world. However, few did as much to move heaven and earth to actively liberate people 
in real time, as did Harriet Tubman. One of the cruel realities of slavery is that the time and or date of someone's birth is often lost to history. This, too, was the case of Harriet Tubman. Nobody actually knows the exact date, or even year, that she was born, but it is very likely that she was born in the early 1820s. Many historians believe that her birth date took place between 1820 and 1822. This is most likely. However, some suggest it could be as late as 1825. Her death certificate complicates this as it names 1815 as her birth year, while her gravestone returns to 1820. What is certain is that she was born into a time that destined her for greatness. Similar to the year, the exact location of her birth is also unknown. But there is little more certainty on this front. It is largely believed that she was born into slavery in a cabin in Dorchester County, Maryland, as Armita Minty Ross. Even the state of Maryland officially recognizes this today as her birthplace. Her parents, Benjamin and Harriet, or Rit Ross, were both slaves and the young Aramita would soon discover the cruel reality of this system. As a child, Minty was often hired out to various slavers across Maryland to help lift productivity where it was deemed necessary. Many of these slave masters proved to be particularly cruel and would often beat her senselessly as a little girl. In one instance, an overseer caught and began to punish a fugitive slave. As the then 12-year-old girl watched the overseer proceed to beat the slave relentlessly, her sense of justice overcame her. The overseer then proceeded to grab a heavy weight that he was then going to use to strike at the fugitive slave, and the young Minty sprung into action. She stood in between the two as a block to the blow, but it came at a great personal cost. As she would later recall, the weight broke my skull. They carried me to the house, all bleeding and fainting. I had no bed no place to lie down on at all, and they laid me on the seat of the loom, and I stayed there all day and night. This blow to the head would prove to be the most life-changing incident in the young girl's life who would become Harriet Tubman. After it happened, she would suffer from occasional episodes of seizures and deep sleep throughout her life. More importantly, however, she began to highlight instances that she believed were visions from the Almighty. Throughout her life's journey, these visions would come to her as warnings and prophecies, oftentimes at a frightening level of accuracy. Many historians today will discount these visions as the results of brain damage that she received from her beating at 12. To her, however, there was never any doubt. It made little difference if the strike to the head that she received at a young age allowed her to connect with God or if it was just a strange coincidence. But she knew the visions were anything but in her head. A woman of devout faith, she needed very little explanation. This violent episode was more than just a turning point in her faith, however. From that moment on, she was resolved to do all that she can to end the injustices of slavery inflicted upon her fellow man. She felt a higher calling that she was meant to lift up her people and play a vital role in the liberation of mankind. Yet, in order to do any of this, she herself would have to remove her own chains before she could help others enjoy their freedom. In 1840, her father, Benjamin Ross, in 1840, her father, Benjamin Ross, 
was freed after the death of his master. His master promised to manumit Benjamin when he turned 45, and although he died before he could fulfill that promise, his son followed through. This promise did not extend to all the Ross family, however. His wife and daughter would have to continue to live in slavery. He continued to work for the family of his former master after his manumission in order to remain close with his family and to find a legal means to free his wife and daughter. He hired a white lawyer to investigate the actual legal status of the remainder of his family. Interestingly enough, what he discovered is that the late master had ensured that not only would Benjamin be free, but so would Rit and Minty. Nonetheless, the son of the former master refused to acknowledge their legal status as free. He kept them as slaves, and there was very little at that time that anyone could do to challenge him. In 1844, Minty Ross became romantically involved with a free black man named John Tubman. They soon married, and she took on his last name, becoming Minty Tubman. Although it was far from uncommon at the time of their marriage for a free black man to marry a slave, it didn't make it any less complicated. Her slave status put a serious strain on their marriage, and it continued to propel her urge to be free. In 1849, she struggled with illness, which made her rather unattractive to potential buyers. This meant good news for Tubman, since it meant that she couldn't be sold off and separated from her family until she got better. Still, this didn't stop her master, Edward Broadus, from trying. It infuriated Tubman that Broadus attempted to send her to another master, threatening their family unity. Yet, instead of lashing out in rage, she instead decided to pray for him. Later, she recalled pleading to God, stating that she, quote, prayed all night long for my master till the first of March, and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. As she soon realized that her master's heart was too corrupted by the institution of slavery, she changed her prayer. She explained that, At the first of March, I began to pray, O oh Lord, if you ain't never going to change this man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way. One week later, Edward Broadus died on March 9th, 1849. While her prayer seemingly was answered, it wasn't exactly the way that she expected. The death of her master only led to a young plantation administrator who couldn't handle the volume of slaves that she now possessed. She scheduled a lot of them to be sold off, including Tubman. It was common in slave states for plantations to try to downsize after the death of the owner in order to make operations more manageable for those left behind to tend to them. It was at this moment that she felt as if God were telling her that if she wanted her freedom, she would have to seize it without delay. There was a very narrow window in which she needed to flee before being sold off, and flee she did. However, complications were quick to arise. The biggest trouble that occurred was that of her husband, John, having no intentions to join or encourage her escape. As she made her plans and discussed them with John, he called her a fool and suggested that he was satisfied with his current arrangement. Keep in mind, again, that John was already a free man, unlike his wife. Perhaps he feared getting caught aiding her in her escape, thus risking enslavement for himself. Perhaps he simply wanted to take the easy route over the just route. No matter, John Tubman would be of no assistance to his wife's escape. In preparation to leave, Minty Tubman changed her first name to Harriet after her mother, in the case that she did indeed get caught. 
while she was hurt that her husband would not be by her side, Harriet Tubman was not about to be deterred. She grabbed her two brothers, Ben and Henry, and on September 17, 1849, the three escaped from their plantation in Maryland in pursuit of freedom. After they escaped, Harriet faced a new challenge. Her brothers wanted to give up the escape. Despite the appeal of freedom, the journey to liberty for a slave was a dangerous one. No matter how bad life on the plantation was for a slave, the threat of being caught escaping was all but certain to make matters worse. Punishment was usually severe for runaways, often including a lashing or a beating to instill fear in the slaves so that they would never attempt to escape again. And that was potentially a positive scenario. It also wasn't uncommon in those days for a runaway slave or even a free black person to be surrounded by a racist mob and lynched from a tree. The threats surrounding Harriet Tubman and her brothers were severe. As for her brothers, it proved too severe. They both decided to turn around and go back to the Maryland plantation. Matters were different for Harriet, however. Despite the dangers that surrounded her, not just as a runaway slave, but as a black woman as well, her passion for freedom burned far too hot to be deterred by what-if scenarios. She used the Underground Railroad network of safe houses to aid her escape north. The first ally that she found was an unnamed white Quaker woman, who sheltered her one of the nights of her journey. Her house was one of the many safe houses across the vast network to aid fleeing slaves in both the north and the south. Harriet was able to rest her head there, and by the next morning, the Quaker woman gave her instructions on what to do and where to go next. These instructions proved to be vital as she scouted across dozens of miles in Maryland. While her exact route is not known, she traveled by night, using the North Star as her guide. Eventually, she reached the Mason-Dixon line, crossing over into Pennsylvania and into freedom. As she looked over the vast land of freedom and opportunity in front of her, she became overwhelmed with joy and emotion. She later recalled in a biography written by Sarah Hopkins Bradford that, quote, When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Despite her joy over the prospect of finally taking her own liberty for herself, she soon made an uncomfortable revelation. In Bradford's biography, Tubman continued to explain that she was free, but, quote, There was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in Maryland. Because of my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and my friends were all there, but I was free, and they should be free. It was at this moment that she realized the purpose that she believed God had given her. Tubman's freedom was a gift by her creator, not meant to be selfishly guarded for herself, but shared with as many people as possible. If she was going to live a life full of liberty, taking charge of her own destiny, it meant that she had to ensure the same fate for her enslaved brethren. It meant that soon she would have to return to aid the escape of her people.
When all was said and done, Harriet Tubman traveled 90 miles to reach her freedom. However, she quickly realized that, as scripture states, much had been given to her. Thus, much was expected by her. Yet, while she may have claimed her freedom for herself, outside of that she had nothing. If she hoped to help her people, she would have to earn some money and some allies. She continued to travel north until she reached Philadelphia. There, she would begin to work, saving up as much as she could. She found employment in hotels and clubhouses. Perhaps one of the best things to happen to Tubman in Philadelphia, as she worked towards freeing her people, was her introduction to William Still. Still was a successful black businessman and, more importantly, a station master of the Underground Railroad. He ensured to keep records of everyone he helped in their journey to freedom so that one day he could tell their story. Still would become a valuable ally of Tubman's as he could provide financial aid as well as institutional knowledge of the Underground Railroad. As mentioned in our episode on Still earlier in this season, he was in fact referred to as the father of the Underground Railroad. No better alliance could have occurred in pursuit of Tubman's mission. Yet, with every new opportunity, an even greater challenge arose. Less than a year after Tubman made her escape to freedom, Congress passed the Compromise of 1850, which most infamously included the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This law imposed harsher punishments for runaway slaves and made it easier for slave masters to retrieve their slaves, even if they had escaped to freedom in the North. Bounty hunters and federal agents searching for and capturing runaway slaves, especially in large cities, were now a serious threat. The result of this was that many slaves escaping to freedom would have to press even further north into Canada in order to escape the jurisdiction of the United States. The pressure for Harriet Tubman to take action in order to save her brethren from bondage was now even more severe. Throughout 1850, she worked, planned, and prepared to start her daring expeditions to first save her family. Finally, she made her first adventure to return south to Maryland in order to start freeing her family. Thanks to the Underground Railroad network that she had access to through her own experience and with the help of William Still, she was able to successfully retrieve her niece as well as her niece's children and guide them towards freedom. While the Fugitive Slave Act meant that even in the North the danger of caught was a serious threat, it was still significantly safer than anywhere in the South. Helping her niece escape was a great triumph, but her work wasn't yet finished. She still had a husband in Maryland that, despite his difficulty when she first fled, she still wished to retrieve him. In 1851, she made a trek towards her old plantation to bring her husband with her to Philadelphia. However, when she arrived, her heart was broken. John Tubman not only had no desire to leave, but had no desire to continue in his marriage with Harriet. As she arrived in Maryland and confronted John again, she discovered that he was in fact remarried and no longer considered Harriet Tubman to be his wife. He was surely surprised to see Harriet not only alive, but returning to the Maryland plantation that she fled from two years earlier. Didn't take long for Harriet to understand that John had no intention of prioritizing her, and she once again left without him. Despite the betrayal of her husband, Harriet Tubman would not be deterred in her fight to liberate her people. 
She continued to return to Maryland in order to help her family escape bondage, and eventually help guide others to freedom as well. She traveled back and forth between Maryland and Philadelphia over the next decade guiding men, women, and children of all ages towards freedom. When she returned to Philadelphia, she frequently visited William Still to provide aid and comfort in his station while finding them their next steps in their pursuit of freedom. With every newly escaped slave that Tubman brought to Still's presence, he sat down with them, pen and paper in hand, in order to capture their story. Tubman left no subtle impact on Still. Still was taken aback by her strength and fortitude as she led so many slaves through his station to freedom. In his book, years later, William Still wrote about Tubman that she, quote, had faithfully gone down into Egypt and had delivered these six bondmen by her own heroism. Harriet was a woman of no pretensions. Indeed, a more ordinary specimen of humanity could hardly be found among the most unfortunate-looking farmhands of the South. Yet, in point of courage, shrewdness, and disinterested exertions to rescue her fellow man by making personal visits to Maryland among the enslaved. She was without her equal. As Still pointed out, Tubman was no threatening-looking woman. The average bystander would be forgiven in looking at her build and her frame and thinking her to be an extremely ordinary woman, but they'd be extremely mistaken. Tubman's strength came from her spirit, her faith and her maker, and belief that all people should be free, all people, including her family, which by this point was largely still in bondage. Tubman could save as many people as she wanted to, but until her family was secured, she would not be whole. While she managed to secure her niece and her niece's children, there were still so many more to rescue. Thus, in 1854, she made her move to make this no longer the case. Harriet was the sister of nine siblings, and all of them she hoped to rescue. This, however, was an unobtainable quest. Three of her siblings, Maria Riddy, Lena, and Soph, could not be rescued, as they were all separated from her family when they were sold into the Deep South in the slave trade. They were never again reunited by Harriet or anyone else in her family. She had much better luck with her three younger brothers, however, two of which originally joined her on her initial escape, but decided to return to the plantation. Henry and Ben, the two that went with her and then turned back, and Robert, all were rescued by Harriet in 1854. This was surely an emotional and satisfactory reunion between Harriet and her brothers. As they returned to the plantation half a decade earlier, both parties must have thought that this was the last time they would see each other. Yet, due to Tubman's iron will and tender heart, she refused to let that be the case. Still, there were two people that Harriet desperately missed and wished to see again as free people, her parents. In 1855, her father, a free black man, finally tried to purchase his wife from her then-current master in order to free her. Finally, after 15 years as a married couple of a divided legal status, the two were one in freedom. Yet this did not extend to the rest of their family. Now, as they approached their elderly years, there was little hope that the two of them could be reunited with any of their children. Besides, Tubman's father, Benjamin, had bigger problems. The threat of arrest loomed over him as he was accused of harboring eight runaway slaves known as the Dover Eight. No matter the truth of the matter, a black man in the 1850s being accused of a crime more or less confirmed one's guilt in the eyes of the law. 
Justice was hardly blind, no matter the legal status of a black person in that day. But Benjamin's guardian angel ended up coming in the form of no heavenly host at all, but rather in the form of his own daughter. Harriet Tubman finally returned to her aging parents' rescue in the summer of 1857, helping them escape the threat of not just slavery, but also imprisonment. The rescue and security of the majority of her family may have been her driving motivation, but she couldn't help herself from helping even the lowliest of strangers along the way in her pursuit of freedom. As she helped dozens of people escape bondage from Maryland to Pennsylvania, Tubman became rather versatile and creative in her methods. From the time that she fled in 1849 to the day that she helped secure her parents and beyond, Harriet Tubman became rather intuitive in the way that she guided people to freedom. Some methods she picked up included simply knowing when and where to find help along her long journey north and back south. In the multiple trips that she made, Tubman found allies, making each trip a little quicker and a little easier. Still, her multiple trips gave her experience as a conductor on the Underground Railroad that few others possessed. Yet her effectiveness as a conductor stretched beyond knowing good people and good timing. Sometimes it led her to pick up a disguise and creep around the authorities in rather unconventional ways. It wasn't uncommon for Tubman or any conductor, for that matter, to hide and pick up disguises as a man or an elderly woman during their expeditions. Additionally, over the years, Tubman adopted more sophisticated methods of maintaining her secrecy in her tracks. This included using full-blown espionage tactics, such as communicating using code language, hiding in secret highway chambers, or even using secret passageways to escape. These methods would gain popularity in the years after slavery ended and would come to define the nature of the Underground Railroad. Sometimes, desperate times called for desperate measures. Harriet would also always carry a firearm with her in all of her expeditions as she helped rescue runaway slaves from bondage. While she never got caught, she had every intention to use it should push come to shove. She carried in order to defend herself and those she rescued from bounty hunters, federal agents, or the possible lynching mob that was ever present. Yet, sometimes Tubman would turn the pistol not towards the dangerous authorities who threatened their safety, but towards the very people that she was trying to help rescue. In extreme or tense circumstances, as escaped slaves became fearful or tired, second-guessing their decision to flee, Tubman would not hesitate to point her weapon at them and threaten their lives if they did not keep moving. She yelled at them things like, You'll be free or die if there was any doubt as to her intention. Obviously, that wasn't the outcome she desired, but she had already run a dangerous train. If any of the passengers on her operation ran into the authorities as the result of their own fear or cowardice, it would jeopardize the entire rescue mission. Dozens of slaves fleeing towards freedom could be returned to slavery, or worse, if one traveling with Tubman decided to give up and return to their plantation. That was an unnecessary risk that she had no intention of letting turn into a reality. Fortunately, the potential use of her pistol only amounted to a forceful reminder of what she was willing to do in pursuit of freedom. 
In total, historians estimate that her nearly decade run as a conductor on the Underground Railroad saved at least some 70 escaping slaves from their lives of bondage into a world of freedom. The exact figure is still unclear, but some estimates even place it as high as 300. No matter the exact figure, Tubman undoubtedly saved countless lives, including many of her own family. Yet, despite all of this, she was not ready to give up in her service towards freedom just yet. After the decades transitioned and the 1850s became the 1860s, the first shots of the Civil War rang out. And Harriet Tubman's fighting spirit didn't allow her to sit around and wait for someone else to win the war while her brothers and sisters remained in chains. In the beginning, Tubman lent her hand to the aid of those injured from the war or those fleeing slavery. This included providing herbal medicine to sick and wounded soldiers, helping them heal back to fair health. She also served as a nurse and maid for a time. However, she couldn't hold back for much longer. While these services were certainly beneficial to those who she helped, Harriet Tubman's spirit craved the thrill of adventure in the service of freedom. In 1863, her experience as a conductor of the Underground Railroad proved to be invaluable to the Union Army. The Underground Railroad network that she possessed special knowledge of after a decade of helping slaves escape to freedom gave her inside information of the layout of towns and communities across the South. The Union Army made her the head of an espionage and scout network, which allowed her to put some of her other skills picked up through the Underground Railroad to good use. As she went on surveillance missions, she would often disguise herself as an elderly woman as she gathered key intel about Confederate forces to help provide the Union with a crucial edge. Not only did she serve as a spy for the Union, but eventually as a soldier. On June 2, 1863, after plenty of detailed and successful espionage missions, Tubman made history as the first black woman in history to lead a military expedition. The former slave, barely more than five feet tall, led a charge with over 150 black Union soldiers on Cumbahee Ferry in South Carolina. The raid on Cumbahee Ferry proved to be a decisive victory for the Union but more importantly, a decisive victory against the apparatus of slavery. After the victory that Tubman helped to ensure, more than 800 slaves were liberated from their captivity. What they didn't realize until after the fact was that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued by President Abraham Lincoln several months earlier. This promised freedom to slaves in the Confederacy, but could only be secured after Union advances were made. One might expect the news of such a proclamation to ignite a jubilant celebration in the heart of Harriet Tubman, who had been working to free her people for nearly 15 years at that point. Tubman's reaction, however, was subdued when she heard the news. When a friend ecstatically turned to her to inform her of the proclamation, she was glad, but not necessarily overwhelmed. When she was asked why she didn't celebrate, Tubman replied, quote, I celebrated two years ago. In Bradford's biography of Tubman, in which the figure in focus played a key role in retelling her story to the author, Harriet recounted that, quote, I rejoiced all I could then and can't rejoice no more. What was Tubman referring to? In fact, a few years before the Emancipation Proclamation, Harriet Tubman once again had one of her prophetic visions that she believed foretold of the coming liberation of her people. After her vision, she sprung up in jubilation, shouting to her friend that, quote, my people are free, to which her friend looked at her and replied, not in our lifetime. 
Harriet, however, stood by her vision. No, she said. God just showed me. My people are free. It had such an effect on Harriet Tubman that by the time that she had heard of the Emancipation Proclamation, she reacted as if it were old news. After so many decades, the visions that she proclaimed displayed just as powerful of an effect on her as they did whenever she was just a girl. It was not long until her vision was only proved to be more true than ever. In 1865, after the Civil War was finally won by the North, and after President Lincoln had been assassinated, the 13th Amendment was finally ratified by the states making slavery constitutionally illegal across all the nation for all time. Now that the war was won and the great sin of slavery eliminated, it was time for Harriet to start to settle down. Mostly. While her efforts after the Civil War were nowhere near as dangerous or as risky as they were during her days leading escaped slaves across miles of the wilderness towards freedom on the Underground Railroad, she didn't retire from helping to liberate people outright. Whenever there was an injustice prevalent or someone in need at her door, Harriet Tubman was there ready to lend a helping hand. In 1867, just two years after the Civil War, surprising news came to Harriet that her first husband, John Tubman, who broke her heart by marrying another woman after her escape, had died, killed in an altercation with a white man. Throughout the entire time, Harriet Tubman led people to freedom on the Underground Railroad, and throughout the entirety of the Civil War, she never once remarried. Although John had turned his back on her, Harriet still considered herself married to John. It wasn't until two years after John's death that Harriet was finally remarried to a man named Nelson Davis, a Civil War veteran and a former slave himself. Together, they adopted a little girl named Gertie. Harriet Tubman remained largely illiterate and impoverished even after her service throughout the Civil War. This, however, did not stop her from making the most out of her life. She continued to give and contribute towards the freedom of disenfranchised groups. She donated her time and energy to the women's suffrage movement as she met with and befriended famed suffragette Susan B. Anthony. Additionally, Tubman purchased land that would go toward the foundation of an elderly home for the care of, quote, aged and indigent colored people. Eventually, as her battle with the head trauma that she'd suffered in her youth only intensified, she herself was admitted in 1911 to the very home that she helped found. Two years later, in 1913, Harriet Tubman became ill with pneumonia and was unable to recover from it. She died on March 10, 1913. Harriet Tubman lived a long, fulfilled, and impactful life. She was born when Thomas Jefferson had still lived, and died after Ronald Reagan had entered the world. This is despite a lifelong battle with brain trauma and countless additional bodily wear and tear. Yet, the truly astonishing aspect of her life was not the length of it, nor was it the health of her life despite the odds. Harriet Tubman lived a life that was truly worth living, a fulfilled life that few others can claim as much as she can, all in the service of others. It would have been easy for her to claim her freedom and lay low somewhere in Philadelphia. She would have more than earned it. But her commitment to her God, her family, and to character prevented Harriet Tubman from taking what would have been, by all accounts, a well-deserved rest.
Against all odds, time and again, she led one of the most successful rescue operations in history in favor of liberty. While it was for some people that she knew and loved, like her parents and siblings, it was largely for complete strangers, people that she had no relationship to other than her common bond of freedom. And for freedom's sake, she led them to the promised land. It is no wonder, then, why so many abolitionists referred to Tubman as Moses, coming to the aid of an oppressed people at great personal risk and cost, just so they can be free, not unlike the Jews of ancient Egypt. What's even more incredible than that is how she seemed to not even give a second thought about it. As William Still reflected on Harriet Tubman years after her Underground Railroad days, the thing that stuck out the most was her courage. He recalled that, quote, great fears were entertained for her safety, but she seemed wholly devoid of any personal fear. The idea of being captured by slave hunters or slaveholders seemed never to enter her mind. She was apparently proof against all adversaries. How many people today can claim such a courage for liberty? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. I think that Harriet Tubman is someone who really instills a lot of inspiration and can teach us a lot about the courage that we need to have in pursuit uh, of these fundamental principles, uh, despite the fact that we may not be experiencing slavery in our own time. It is still something that we can apply in our own lives and in our own way, and it certainly will be much easier than anything thing that she had to go through in her time. Next week, we are going to be going over a story that I absolutely love. It is going to be the story of a woman named Mum Bet, who is the uh, reason why Massachusetts was able to eliminate slavery in the first place. Uh, and largely, I would uh, somewhat credit her for being the spark that ignited the abolition movement across the country. It's a great story, and I cannot wait for you to check it out and to listen to it. Uh, so tune back in next week as we continue on this season two of Profiles in Liberty. We're already halfway through the season, um, and there are still so many stories to be able to tell and so many heroes to be able to highlight, uh, and we are going to be continuing throughout this season and through the next uh, and as long as we can do this. So please, if you do want to help grow the program, please be sure to share this episode. Please be sure to share the program as a whole. Share all of Season 1 and share all of Season 2. Give it a rating. Give it a 5-star review. So that way you can help spread the message, spread these stories, and spread liberty. If you want to uh, DM me or if you want to follow me on Twitter then please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can also follow We Are Libertarians at, on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.